Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's episode, we will discuss the recent Supreme Court grant in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. We will also give you an important update on access to discovery in the ongoing transgender military ban litigation. But that is just the beginning. We have three fascinating cases to discuss today. First up is a groundbreaking ruling that was recently affirmed by a Ninth Circuit panel and denied rehearing by the larger court. This decision was on an injunction granting gender confirmation surgery to an Idaho inmate in Edmo v. Corzon. Next, we will talk about another Ninth Circuit smackdown in an outrageous case, Parents for Privacy v. Barr. This is a lawsuit brought by parents, students, and a parent advocacy group that claims an Oregon public school violated Title IX and certain of their constitutional rights when it allowed transgender students to use the school bathrooms, locker rooms, and showers that match their gender identity. Finally, we will chat about a case on behalf of a transgender Mexican woman seeking a temporary restraining order to release her and return her to her prior detention facility. The suit claims that she was denied the right to counsel, was not receiving medical treatment, and was thus entitled to a bond hearing before an immigration judge. With us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments on LGBT issues both here and abroad. Hi, Art. Okay, and and we should let our listeners know that we're recording this while we're in a shutdown state because of the coronavirus. So we're doing it by telephone conference, and (laughs) you're in your suburban uh, home, and I'm in my office, uh, briefly at least today. So we'll take it from there. Okay, let's start with the massive Supreme Court grant that we touched on in our special edition of the Legal LGBT Podcast. That's Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, which was granted by the U.S. Supreme Court on February 24th. It is an appeal by Catholic Social Services. This is a taxpayer-funded child welfare agency, and they are claiming a constitutional right to turn away same-sex couples seeking to provide loving homes to children in the public foster care system. Of course, a federal trial court and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals both rejected the Catholic Social Services argument that they have a right to discriminate. They may not use a religion objection. They may not use a religious objection to reject families headed by same-sex couples. At stake in this case is whether the Supreme Court will affirm the very basic principle that when agencies accept government money to provide services to children involved in the foster care system, the religious beliefs of the agency, which is a publicly funded service provider, cannot serve as a reason to refuse to comply with a neutral, non-discrimination law by turning away same-sex couples. Art, tell us about this case. 
Great. And of course, you have kept us up to date on everything involving the back and forth in the transgender military ban cases that are proceeding in various federal courts across the country. Will you give us a little bit of an update on the discovery portion of these cases? Okay, we'll start with that. And uh, just to make sure that our listeners know that we did record a special podcast on this, which is available in the usual place where our podcasts are archived uh, if they want a more extensive discussion. But just to recap, on February 24th, the Supreme Court granted cert on a case from the Third Circuit, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, where Catholic Social Services, an agency affiliated with the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, which uh, has been under contract for uh, almost a century to uh, screen and uh, certify potential foster parents and then getting referrals from the city welfare department uh, of uh, children in need of foster placements, matching them with couples and providing supportive services. Uh, And uh, as I say, this, this contract has been in effect for more than a century. And what happened was a reporter from the Philadelphia Inquirer following up on the story that's arisen around the country of uh, mainly Catholic agencies that were refusing to deal with same-sex couples who wanted to be foster or adoptive parents. So this reporter from the Philadelphia Inquirer was phoning around to the various religiously affiliated agencies in the city and hit upon two of them that said that they would not certify married same-sex couples as qualified to be foster parents because of their religious convictions. Uh, One of them was Catholic Social Services. Uh, The other one was Bethany Religious Services. The uh, reporter for the Inquirer notified uh, the uh, agency, the social service agency uh, of the city of Philadelphia, which handles this uh, issue and which has the contract with uh, Catholic Social Services and Bethany, that this was going on and that the paper was going to write a story about it. And so they wanted to give them a heads up because it was likely to cause some issues to arise. Uh, so the issues arose. Uh, the city agency got back in touch with Bethany and with Catholic Social Services. Bethany backed down because they didn't want to lose their contract. Catholic Social Services stood firm and said that they would not deal with same-sex couples uh, because they only certify either single people or married couples and they do not recognize same-sex marriages, even if the city does, as a matter of their religious doctrine. Uh, so uh, when the pa- uh, article appears in the newspaper, the city council goes crazy. They pass a resolution demanding that the social services agency does an investigation, that the Human Rights Commission get involved. Uh, and before you know it, uh, an ultimatum is given to Catholic Social Services. Either you will deal with same-sex couples or we will not renew your contract and we will stop making referrals to you. And when Catholic Social Services stood firm, uh, the city cut them off, basically. Uh, first, they stopped making referrals, and as soon as they stopped making referrals, Catholic Social Services runs into federal district court claiming that their constitutional rights are being violated. And they also claimed that the city's human rights ordinance did not apply to them because they said, we are not a public accommodation, we are a city contractor performing basically a delegated municipal service. We're not selling goods and services to the public. Uh, That didn't cut much ice with the agency that that they were dealing with. Uh, 
And in fact, uh, the court found that as a matter of, uh, of Pennsylvania law, they would be considered a, a public accommodation. But setting that aside, because that's not part of the Supreme Court case, uh, the more important issue is they asked for injunctive relief against the city, and it was denied by the federal district court on the grounds that no constitutional rights were being violated here. Uh, they said that uh, there is no free exercise of religion exemption from complying with neutral state laws of general application. The constitutional rule that dates back to the case of Employment Division versus Smith from the early 1990s, an opinion by Justice Scalia, and uh, they also said, uh, the uh, court uh, said uh, in this case that there is no First Amendment compelled speech issue either, that this is a regulation of conduct, not of speech. Uh, so the Third Circuit uh, received an appeal from the denial of injunctive relief and affirmed unanimously a three-judge panel, and now we have this cert petition that was granted. And the big deal about watching this case is one of the questions on which cert was granted was whether Employment Division versus Smith should be revisited by the court. And we know that several members of the court have been eager to do that and have signaled as much in various concurring and dissenting opinions in other cases. Uh, so there is a possibility that this rule, uh, which is now a 30-year-old rule of federal constitutional law, that uh, the Free Exercise Clause does not privilege individuals or organizations to refuse to comply with general state laws that are neutral with respect to religion, that is, that don't single out religion and treat it differently. Uh, so that is a very significant issue. Uh, and also, I think the compelled speech issue is a very significant issue because the Supreme Court has embraced that concept of compelled speech in past cases involving gay rights. Uh, where we've been on the losing end, like the Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade case or uh, the Boy Scouts of America versus Dale case. So we have a lot to watch on that case. Uh, the uh, timing of the cert grant is interesting. Uh, the case has been pending on a cert petition for many, many, many months. It has been It was scheduled for conference many times. I think it's possible that the court delayed until now for granting the cert petition with the idea that this pushes it over to next term in terms of the oral arguments. So this won't be argued until sometime next fall. And uh, what about if Bostock and Harris and Zarda come out uh, as a win for LGBT rights? What, it, what would happen if we win there and then lose badly in this case? Well, it would make it would make that win a somewhat hollow victory because, depending how this case is is decided, uh, it could result in carving a big exemption out of the anti-discrimination laws. I and mean, any discriminatory employer who wants to cite uh, religious objections to employing gay people might be able to make a case uh, if the if the court reverses employment division versus Smith. Uh, if they just narrow it, that might be a different story. Or if they instead focus on the compelled speech issue, then that, I don't think, would have as much of an impact on uh, a victory if we win a victory on the employment discrimination cases. Great. Well, thank you for that important update. Let's go ahead and talk about the uh, trans-military ban. Okay. So we know that the, uh, the so-called Mattis plan, uh, which was contained 
in a uh, memo and a task force report that then-Secretary of Defense Mattis transmitted to President Trump in February of 2018 uh, took a year of litigation before that policy went into effect, uh, but ultimately the Supreme Court basically let it go into effect while the four cases that were filed around the country challenging the constitutionality of the ban continue. So now the focus is on not the original tweet by Trump in July of 2017, just announcing unilaterally a, a complete ban on service by transgender people, but rather the focus now is on the Mattis plan, which was put into effect in April of 2018. Uh, and the big question in the constitutional litigation is what is the administration's basis for adopting this plan uh, and for adopting a ban of transgender service when, in fact, transgender people had been successfully serving in the military uh, since the summer of 2016 uh, when the then-existing ban was lifted by the previous administration. Uh, and as in any other litigation involving the Trump administration, pretty much, the administration is stonewalling in discovery. You know, now that we've gotten past the, all the courts denied motions to dismiss, they refocus the case to focus on the Mattis plan instead of the original uh, policy that Trump announced because it's the Mattis plan that's relevant now. And the Mattis plan was supposedly devised as a result of a task force appointed by Mattis in response to the president's uh, announcement of the ban during the summer of 2017, the task force supposedly met for several months and interviewed a lot of people, did a lot of research, produced this report, which claims to document reasons why it's not a good thing to allow transgender people to serve in the military. Uh, most of the stuff that they cited, uh, people who are expert in this field say has no credibility. Uh, it's more ideological than factually based. And so what the courts are doing now is they're putting the administration to the test uh, initially in the discovery process of responding to inquiries by the plaintiffs about the basis for this down to the most elementary sort of things like, please tell us who wrote this report, this task force report. Please tell us who was on the task force. Please tell us who they interviewed and tell us what information was produced. And the administration has been stonewalling. And the judge who has been now taking the leading role in dealing with this is Marsha Peckman of the U.S. District Court in the Western District of Washington in Seattle, and which we note Seattle now is one of the major initial hotspots of this coronavirus situation. So who knows how that's going to affect the litigation going forward. But at any event, uh, Judge Peckman has become more and more frustrated because she issues discovery orders and then the government doesn't comply with them and they come back and they ask for clarification as if what she originally said was unclear when in fact it was remarkably clear. But uh, she sort of, I don't think she totally lost her cool in the February 7th order that she issued that we report on in this issue, but she certainly is frustrated uh, and uh, she certainly doesn't want to put up with this anymore. She very pointedly said that it's not a good idea for them to appeal every intermediate discovery order and then ask that every order be stayed while they're appealing it. It's, it's just uh, delay after delay after delay. So she tells them, get with it, and she gave them uh, a deadline. And the interesting thing is, and we'll be reporting this in the April issue of Law Notes, 
uh, early in March, she issued another order <laughs> because they asked for more clarification. And she said in this order, in no uncertain terms, look, you tell them who wrote this report. You tell them who reviewed the drafts and had input. You tell them who was on the task force. You tell them who the witnesses are. Come on, guys, and I'm giving you two weeks to do it. Well, the two weeks are up in about a week after this date that we're taping, and who knows what's going to happen. But this is going on, and I think uh, everyone's sort of uh, in the in the four litigations that are pending. They've all got their eyes on this one because this is the one that seems to be furthest along in terms of addressing all the discovery issues. Uh, and, of course, once the government actually turns over information that's requested, if they do, it's the same information that the plaintiffs are requesting in the other three cases, so the cat will be out of the bag. Although uh, Judge Peckman, while rejecting various privilege uh, arguments that the government has been making, agrees with the government that they can shelter the identity of some of these people and some of these documents by designating them as only available to the counsel who are litigating the case and not to be released publicly. Uh, so we won't necessarily find out who wrote the task force report uh, if Judge Peckman ends up agreeing with them that that should be an eyes-only thing. But at any rate, the cases are going forward. But if Trump is not reelected, uh, the chances are excellent, I think, from the latest debate that we had between uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders that uh, very early in a new administration this transgender ban will be rescinded and the whole thing will become moot except perhaps for damages for people who were injured as a result of its interim implementation. Uh, but if Trump is reelected, this litigation could drag on for a very long time just in discovery. Okay. Last summer, a Ninth Circuit panel affirmed the issuance of an injunction which granted gender confirmation surgery to an Idaho inmate by the name of Audrey Edmo. We have been following this case in Law Notes. Art has been giving us updates as we've gone, and as Idaho and Corazon, who's the contracted healthcare provider, have continued to resist providing the surgery. Art, what can you tell us about this recent en banc denial of rehearing? Okay, this is about Audrey Edmo, who is a transgender woman who was incarcerated in the state of Idaho, and uh, she has been given uh, hormone treatment and uh, certain accommodations, but she uh, wants the surgery. She wants gender transition surgery, and uh, the medical staff uh, is divided about it in the prison system. Some of them are for it. Some of them are against it. Uh, but generally, the, uh, the Department of Corrections took the position that she's not entitled to it, and they've been fighting it in court. Uh, a federal district judge ruled, uh, Judge Windmill, that this is a serious medical condition and that uh, respected authority, widely followed authority, uh, says that for people with severe gender dysphoria, this is appropriate medical treatment for it, uh, necessary medical treatment for it especially when you have an inmate who, being denied uh, the uh, procedures, has attempted suicide. So uh, the issue uh, went up to the Third Circuit, and a Third Circuit panel, as you said, affirmed the district judge and found that the World Professional Association of Transgender Health Guidelines, or standards, 
which have been recognized by many courts, would support the court's decision. And uh, the state, of course, made a last-ditch effort to uh, get an on-bank review, and the on-bank review was denied. Uh, but nine judges, including two senior judges, whose votes technically don't count, uh, nine judges of the circuit dissented in various opinions. Uh, there's no opinion by the majority of the uh, circuit which did not vote for on-bank. See, the way this works is when they circulate for on-bank, the question is how many people are going to vote to grant it. Uh, so people don't have to vote to deny it. They just don't vote to grant it. Uh, so we don't have any kind of opinion speaking for the judges who decided not to grant on-bank review. But we have several angry dissenting opinions uh, from the people who thought it should be granted on-bank review. And the lead one is by one of the senior judges who uh, actually doesn't get a vote on this, Judge O'Scanlan, who wrote, With its decision today, our court becomes the first federal court of appeals to mandate that a state pay for and provide sex reassignment surgery to a prisoner under the Eighth Amendment. The three-judge panel's conclusion that any alternative course of treatment would be cruel and unusual punishment is, an is as unjustified as it is unprecedented. To reach such a conclusion, the court creates a circuit split, substitutes the medical conclusions of federal judges for the clinical judgments of prisoners treating physicians, redefines the familiar deliberate indifference standard, and in the end constitutionally enshrines precise and partisan treatment criteria in what is a new, rapidly changing, and highly controversial area of medical practice. Well, that's pretty strong uh, on, on several different points. I think on the point that in creating a circuit split on a hotly litigated issue, it probably would make sense to have an expanded panel and not leave it to three judges. That actually has some common sense behind it. Although uh, loath as I am to admit that O'Scanlan actually has a point as to that, but as to the others, uh, it's not a case of substituting the conclusions, medical conclusions of federal judges. It's a case of hearing expert testimony, as people do in any case in which there's medical expert testimony, and deciding who's the most credible and who has the most support in the profession for their positions. And in this case, the, uh, the three-judge panel went with uh, not saying that the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, usually referred to by its initials as WPATH, not, not taking the position that that is defining the standard. Uh, what it's saying is the standard is evidence of what is thought out in the profession. And to the extent that many courts have recognized the WPATH standards, as providing very, very good, reliable guidance that is widely supported in the profession, it's appropriate for federal judges to look to it. Although in this case, the three-judge panel was very careful not to say that it was deciding that every transgender prisoner who wants it is entitled to sex reassignment surgery. What they said is, it depends on the individual it depends on the diagnosis of the individual. It depends whether the individual meets all the criteria necessary under the WPATH standards uh, to be qualified for the surgery. Uh, it's a very individualized determination. We're not making a categorical ruling. So to that extent, the dissents, both O'Scanlan and the other dissenters, to a certain extent are mischaracterizing the panel decision by treating it uh, sort of in a broad brush way instead of getting at the nuances.
Uh, and as far as a partisan treatment criterion, this is, I think, one of the most disturbing parts of O'Scanlan's dissent. He really tears apart WPATH as saying it is purely an advocacy organization. It shouldn't be treated, and the standards it generates shouldn't be treated the same as standards coming from a non-advocacy organization like the American Medical Association or the American Psychiatric Association, that uh, this is an organization of people who specialize in treating transgender patients, and therefore they're biased and they're partisan. Uh, so it's uh, our, our writer in Law Notes who uh, specializes in the prison cases, William Rold, characterizes it as a frontal attack on reliance of the WPATH standards. Uh, so this is one that is definitely going to get a cert petition. There's definitely a circuit split. It's an issue that's being litigated in several circuits. The on-bank dissents rely on decisions by the Fifth Circuit and the First Circuit to deny the surgery. Uh, so it's clear that there's a circuit split, and it's clear that it's being litigated around the country. So I can't see why the Supreme Court would refuse to take this. And if they did, it would be the first time that they've taken a transgender case, with the exception, of course, of the Title VII case that we're still waiting for. But apart from that, they have never decided a transgender case on the merits Way back in the 1980s, as a case involving a transgender prisoner and the circumstances under which the prison has to protect them from attacks by other prisoners. Uh, but that wasn't so much of a transgender rights case as a more general case about the duties of prisons to uh, provide a safe setting for prisoners, a duty that uh, most of them around the country fall far short of. Uh, but in this case, I, I can't see why the court would not grant cert in this case especially with these very outspoken dissenting opinions. Also worth mentioning that uh, of the nine judges that Trump has appointed to the Ninth Circuit, almost all of them voted to dissent uh, on this on-bank round of uh, things, although none of the Trump appointees was on the three-judge panel. Okay, this next case that we're going to talk about is a really important win, which is also uh, in the Ninth Circuit. And rather than introducing this myself, I'm just going to quote from an article uh, that was posted uh, by a writer for Above the Law blog, which we absolutely love. And if you don't follow Above the Law, please give him a, a look. Um, it was written by Elizabeth Dye. Here's how she talks about uh, this case. Pour one out for Ma and Pa Bigot, who just got their trans-bashing rear ends handed to them by the Ninth Circuit. Sorry, snowflakes, there's no 14th Amendment privacy right for the little bigots to ban transgender students from the locker room. Trans kids just going to school like normal kids, which they are, is neither sexual harassment nor an infringement on the free speech and free exercise of religion. And if Princess and Junior Bigot are so wigged out that they refuse to use the restroom all day, well, that's on them. Okay, this one is very much like a case that we talked about a few years ago from the Third Circuit involving the Boyertown School District in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, uh, you know, the usual suspects in terms of, of counsel uh, pushing on the parents in this case uh, from a school district in Oregon, uh, Dallas School District, 
where uh, the school district decided, and this is before the Trump administration, or rather the Obama administration, excuse me, this is before the Obama administration sent out their guidance uh, through the education department to all the school districts in the country about how to respect the rights of transgender students. This district had a request from a transgender student uh, for uh, to be able to use appropriate restroom and locker room facilities. And the school district studied the question itself and decided, yes, it's the right thing to do. Uh, this is uh, a uh, person who was identified as female at birth, but uh, now identified as male, uh, referred to in the opinion as student A. And student A wanted to use the boys' restroom facilities in the boys' locker room. And uh, the district said yes, and they adopted a general policy uh, that uh, they would go with someone's gender identity. Uh, they would go with it in terms of pronouns, in terms of dress codes, in terms of everything. Uh, just treat the student as male for that purpose. Uh, so according to the allegations of the complaint here, the student began to use male facilities, prompting other male students to report, quote, embarrassment, humiliation, anxiety, intimidation, fear, apprehension, and stress. In other words, they saw someone in their restroom, or they thought they might encounter someone in their restroom, who they thought of as a girl. Uh, and one wonders how frightened these guys were that some girl was going to see them naked. But in any event... Uh, they uh, they got all upset, and their parents got all upset, and they found uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, of course, uh, which filed a lawsuit on their behalf called Parents for Privacy Against Barr. Why they're suing Attorney General Barr is a good question. Uh, and the court said, yeah, that's a good question, because they didn't do this in response to any kind of dictate from the federal government. The school district did it on their own, and so they dismissed all the federal defendants from the case. Uh, so although it's still called Parents for Privacy versus Barr in this opinion, um, actually uh, the federal government is no longer a defendant in the case. The case is against the Dallas School District. And the court, in line with what the Third Circuit said last time around on this issue, said, no, there's no constitutional right at stake here on behalf of these students and their parents. This doesn't interfere with the parents' uh, constitutional rights to raise their kids the way they want. It doesn't interfere with the privacy rights of the students. Uh, the school district, as school districts do in cases like this, is willing to accommodate students who don't want to share their facilities by allowing them to use the nurse's restroom to change or something like that or, you know, a, a single stall uh, restroom to do their duty or whatever. And so the court found there's no First Amendment issue here. There's no privacy issue under the 14th Amendment here. Uh, there's no freedom of association issue here. And the Ninth Circuit affirmed that. Uh, this is a panel decision uh, issued on February 12th. Uh, I'm not aware of any kind of on-bank petition. But if they're going to file for cert, I don't think they're going to get very far because the parents in the Boyertown case filed for cert and it was denied. Uh, so I think for now the Dallas uh, district is safe in terms of its policy. Thank you. And what happens if we, uh, if Trump isn't reelected? Um, one of the first actions that the administration took was to get rid of all of the guidance uh, that directed public schools to allow trans students to use the 
restrooms and locker rooms consistent with their gender identity. What what would you expect to happen if uh, Trump isn't reelected in November? Well, if Trump isn't reelected in November, I would expect a new Secretary of Education would come in, reevaluate the policy, and probably restore the guidance that was put out by the Obama administration. For one thing, to the extent the guidance has been called into question in the courts, the courts have reaffirmed the position that the Obama administration took, uh, that there isn't a constitutional issue here. And in fact, uh, one of the other issues that the students and the parents were raising was Title IX, which forbids uh, discrimination uh, on the basis of sex in educational institutions that get federal money, which is all public school systems. Uh, and they were claiming that this is a hostile environment under Title IX. Well, the answer is that in many cases we've had rulings that exactly the opposite of the case is the case. If you exclude transgender people from appropriate facilities, then you're creating a hostile environment for them, which violates Title IX. Uh, so uh, I have a feeling that a Democratic administration would probably revert to the Obama administration's guidance, and it's waiting there to be reissued. And final question, what happens if we lose um, in Harris funeral homes that sex does not cover uh, trans folks in the context of uh, workplace and Title VII? What happens in these cases? That's a very interesting question because the uh, restroom facilities access issue is also an issue under Title VII. Uh, it wasn't raised in Harris Funeral Homes. In Harris Funeral Homes, it was all about the dress code. Uh, but uh, in some of the EEOC decisions I know, there was a, a specific EEOC decision, Lusardo, which involved a uh, situation in a federal installation where they were not allowing a transgender person to use the uh, facilities consistent with their gender identity and the EEOC took the position that that violates Title VII but the basis for that of course was their prior holding that Title VII applies to gender identity discrimination claims so that issue uh, to the extent that it, it theoretically carries over under Title IX because Title IX courts look to Title VII precedents that could be affected by the Harris Funeral Home case depending how the court decides it the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California recently denied a motion by a transgender Mexican woman who was seeking a temporary restraining order to release her or return her to her prior detention facility. She is claiming that she was denied the right to counsel and was not receiving gender dysphoria medical treatment and was entitled to a bond hearing before an immigration judge. Art, tell us about this interesting case. Very interesting. Okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a case out of California involving a trans person who's seeking medical help uh, who from uh, after being held in ICE custody. Okay. Uh, California court denies release to a transgender uh, woman in ICE custody who was seeking medical treatment and a bond hearing. Can you tell us a little bit about this district court um, case in California? Okay. Okay, this is a district court decision by uh, Justice uh, Stephen Breyer's brother, who wow. is a federal district judge out there, Charles Breyer. Uh, the, uh, the plaintiff in this case was brought to the United States from Mexico as an infant and uh, grew up in this country. And 
you know, it's one of these people who presumably would be protected by DACA if DACA is ultimately upheld and not rescinded, uh, but for the fact that uh, she got into trouble. And uh, she was uh, convicted of a crime. It is not specified in this opinion what the crime was. That's not really all that relevant if it is a crime of the type that can uh, put you into removal proceedings from the United States by ICE. So uh, when uh, when people who are not citizens are convicted of crimes, uh, of course, ICE is informed, and they commence proceedings for removal. Uh, this is an individual who was diagnosed with gender dysphoria while in detention by ICE. And the procedure, evidently, for people in the San Francisco detention facility who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria is to ship them off to Texas, where they have a facility where they claim they're set up to deal with transgender people. Uh, so she was transferred to Texas, and her first complaint about that is she's lost contact with her lawyer. Her lawyer's in San Francisco. Uh, is not uh, reasonable for him to have to fly back and forth to Texas. And uh, so she she wants to be transferred back to San Francisco. Uh, they told her that by transferring her to Texas, she was going to get treatment. But she said she hasn't gotten any treatment. She hasn't gotten any hormones. She uh, is not being set up for sex reassignment surgery or anything. Uh, so... She had, has an appeal on file to the Ninth Circuit with uh, her uh, removal proceeding. Uh, she's appealing an order of the Board of Immigration Appeals, which has to go to the circuit where she was located. But at the same time, she filed a petition in U.S. District Court, uh, both for habeas corpus and for a temporary restraining order against the Justice Department, uh, she claims in this proceeding she was denied her right to counsel because of the transfer and that she was denied medical treatment. She requested that she be provided a bond hearing before an immigration judge. Uh, in a bond hearing, a determination is supposed to be made whether she has to be kept in detention pending a final ruling in her case. Uh, and it used to be pretty routine that uh, people who could post a bond would be released pending a decision in their uh, removal case. But under the Trump administration, uh, they're trying to avoid bond hearings and they're trying to avoid releasing people uh, because the president's against it. Uh, so uh, she had a habeas petition and she had a TRO and the judge denied them both. However, uh, the denial was more on jurisdictional grounds than anything else because under the, uh, under the relevant statutes governing federal litigation over prisoner issues, Basically, the courts have very little jurisdiction to do much of anything. And similarly, in the immigration uh, status, you have to show that there's some constitutional violation, basically, uh, to get a federal court to intervene in a removal case. Uh, so she's in a pretty, pretty bad uh, situation here with one exception, and that is it seems that her filing suit has spurred the people in the detention facility in Texas to try to provide her with some treatment, or at least uh, the judge reports that as of now, both parties agree that, quote, steps are being taken to provide her with hormone treatment. And Judge Breyer said that he cannot step in to micromanage the details, timing, or location of ISIS provision of medical care, so he's not going to issue an order as to that. But what he did do is issue an order to the government to file a status report with the court 
to ensure that plaintiff does continue to receive the medically necessary treatment while she is in detention. Uh, so she achieved something there, even though she didn't get transferred back to San Francisco, and even though uh, she didn't get a specific order that they provide any particular treatment to her. Uh, so I guess filing the case was worthwhile. It, it's getting her something, but it's not getting her a TRO or a habeas corpus petition. The judge said, basically, it's in the Ninth Circuit's ballpark because decisions of the Board of Immigration Appeals are directly appealable to the circuit court. Wow. What a um, big uh, podcast all about the Ninth Circuit. It's a yeah. big circuit, and it's a, it's a big episode. It's a big circuit, and the circuit is transforming because Trump has appointed nine judges out of 28. Uh, so all he needs is a few more, really, to tip things. And there was a very disturbing report today that uh, Senator McConnell and his staff have been getting on the phone to uh, Republican Court of Appeals judges who are old enough to qualify as senior, urging them to take senior status before the end of the year so Trump can nominate young replacements. Just in I case he loses just in I case he loses the election and loses the Senate, they want to be able because he has filled all but one existing vacancy in the courts of appeals at this point. And so they want to make more vacancies for him. When a judge goes senior, the president can appoint a replacement, and the senior judge gets to continue at full pay if they want to, and they can have a reduced schedule if they want to, or they can continue to sit on cases with a full schedule if they want to. The the only uh, way that they're impeded at all is on uh, voting on, on bank decisions, basically. That's just staggering. If uh... – if they wanted to add judges to the federal courts, do they need they need an act of Congress? On that? Yeah, they need an act of Congress to to do that. And the last time we had a big expansion of that was back uh, in the Bush Clinton period. Uh, the I think the deal that was struck was Bush got a whole bunch of appointments to new vacancies, and then Clinton got a whole bunch of new appointments. They divided them up. Uh, so it's been like 30 years since there was a major expansion, really, in the federal uh, courts of appeals. And there are some circuits that are very much overloaded. There are other circuits that don't really have a, uh, that much business. Uh, but the Ninth Circuit is uh, continuing sort of troubling that the circuit has just gotten too big to be manageable. They they have 11 judge on bank panels uh, because uh, to have the entire circuit sit, uh, for one thing, they'd have to rent a small theater. They couldn't do it in a courtroom. Yeah. Uh, so Gee, uh, a Democratic but, administration should seriously consider adding a 12th circuit and filling it up quick. Yeah. Well, they, I think dividing up the Ninth Circuit has been a very, very contentious issue because what do you do with California? Do you divide it up between uh, two circuits, which would be totally unprecedented to have one state and two different circuits? Uh, or do you make California its own circuit and then take the rest of the existing Ninth Circuit and make that the Twelfth Circuit? Uh, and there are arguments back and forth on that. I mean, if if you divide up California, that means that California judges get to influence decisions in two different circuits, very which no other state would no other state would have that uh, that power. So it's, it's a very interesting situation. And and if you reverted back to the situation where senators would have a veto on appointment of judges, uh, which we used to have, but we don't have right now, uh, you know, that would give the California senators an awful lot of power. 
with respect yeah. to the staffing of the courts of appeals. I don't see us getting back to that place. I would certainly be outraged if the Democrats re restore all of the norms that uh, Mitch McConnell and Grassley have demolished. Uh, it just, you know, it, it's totally tone deaf. But one good thing, if the Democrats get in, if they divide it into Northern California and Southern California as two separate states, then California would suddenly have four senators instead of two, <laughs> which doesn't even begin to make up with their underrepresentation in the Senate in terms of their population. But it oh, was sure. making a start. All right. Okay. And let's. Uh, do you have enough note for us, Art? Yeah, I always have enough note. Uh, this is a, a, an interesting one. So a, a gay man. A U.S. citizen named Matthew Thomas uh, is engaged to be married to an Iranian gay man named Akbar Masumi. And he filed a petition uh, with the government for one of these uh, marital visas to be able to bring Mr. Masumi into the U.S. for them to get married. And uh, as you can imagine, the U.S. Customs and Immigration Service is having a hell of a time deciding how to rule on this. Uh, partly because, after all, the Supreme Court ultimately upheld Trump's ban on people from Iran, among other places. Uh, and uh, so they've been dragging their heels. This petition, uh, Mr. Masumi attended an interview with the U.S. Embassy in Abu Dhabi on August 16, 2017. And at the end of the interview, the adjudicator said his visa application was temporarily refused uh, pending completion of administrative processing. Well, they're still waiting. That was August 2017. They're still waiting. And so finally, out of disgust, after there's, you know, Senator Duckworth reached out uh, to the embassy on their behalf, uh, didn't get anywhere. And uh, so they filed suit in the District of Columbia, basically asking the court to mandamus the State Department to say, come on, make a decision. Uh, and our writer on the case, Philip Kukovic, who is my student research assistant who wrote this up for the law notes, points out that, you know, there's sort of a heads I win, tails I lose kind of thing going on here because consular decisions on visas are not subject to judicial review. And the government came in and argued that this case was not justiciable because consular decisions are not uh, subject to judicial review. And the federal district judge in the case said, well, hold on a minute, uh, she said. This is Judge Ellen Huvel of uh, Senior U.S. District Judge in D.C. She said, they're not asking for a review of a consular decision. They're asking for us to tell the State Department to make a decision, one way or the other. They want to know where they stand. It's been years. Uh, so she ordered them to uh, make a decision. Uh, issued a decision on February 7th. Uh, of course, the likelihood is that the State Department will decide against them, and that will be the end of it, unless they want to get married in Abu Dhabi, which I don't think is possible for same-sex couples yet. So Ouch. it's sort of a, sort of an odd. I thought the other notes are usually these somewhat odd cases. So one wonders about the litigation strategy here. It seems to be perhaps uh, politically inept. Thank you for joining us. This and other episodes of the 
Legal LGBT podcast, including the Law Notes episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast, can be found online. If you visit us on iTunes, please give us comments, leave us a five-star rating. It helps others discover our podcast. I know people are clamoring for podcast content, given the uh, recent social distancing situation that we're all facing. If people reach out to you, let them know about our podcast, direct them to ways that they can get involved and listen to the latest updates on LGBT legal goings on, and art will continue to be at the ready to give us all the very latest. Thanks for listening.